10 years of Finders Keepers Records, an alternative history of music. Have you got a light? Yes. Is that, is that you, Pete? Of course it is. Don't <laughs> recognise me. All right. Yeah, you're yeah, you ready for the party then? I, th- I think I am. You're lucky yeah. again. I where it is. I'm a little stressed with it. I'm not not too sure what's going on. Everything seems a bit weird. I'm, I'm never too sure where the keeper's cottage actually is. In the dark, it's, yeah, it's, it's difficult to find. Yeah. Seen Doug? Somebody looking in the shadows over there. Hello. 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 Excuse me, mate. Hiya. Sorry, Doug, I'm a bit jumpy here. Sorry, gents, I went down the office to get some tinnies. Right, okay, ready I've got for... my cans of breaker already. Right, okay, you got a big bag of records. Oh, yes. Yeah. Right, I'm looking forward to this party. Party of the year. What, is it the party of the year? Of course it's a party of the year. It's the Finders Keepers 10th Anniversary Radio Special. Part one. Right, this must be the place. A bit nervous. Mm. Right, so, I mean, what, what, what? Decked out in balloons, black balloons. What's it, what, Ballon Noir? <laughs> <laughs> if you like. <laughs> what, we, what do we expect? What are we going to do at this party? What we're going to do at this party, we are going to play every single release on the Finders Keepers record label. What, accompanied by friendly chat and commentary? Of course, as always. Sounds like the party of a, of a party lifetime. Video? It is I, the greatest party ever. Hang on a minute, we can't have a, a Finders Keepers party without our favourite radio show theme tune, Jean-Claude Vanier's L'Enfant La Mouche Ella Allumettes. What record the start of it all? That's the one. Breaking boundaries before breaking even. Ten years of Finders Keepers Records.
You're listening to the Finders Keepers radio show. Ten years of Finders Keepers, over 250 releases, began in 2005 with Andy Votel and Doug Shipton. Hello, boys. Hello, Pete. You're like the, uh, the Bill Gates and uh, Steve Jobs of Finders Keepers. That was more like Morecambe and Wise. Yeah, well, you said that rather than I. <laughs> <laughs> Opening no gates and not got enough jobs. Yeah. That's from what, what I can glee from reading between the lines, you were slightly burnt out with Twisted Nerve, which was the badly drawn boy thing huge mainstream success and dealing with people in the industry you just had enough and you wanted to do the complete alternative as a record label is that right in a nutshell in a nutshell yeah yeah that's a, a dry roasted nutshell pretty much <laughs> I can see you beginning to sweat again I don't want to take you back to that very dark period but well established badly drawn boy hadn't you all I'll say at this point at that point I'd just learned how to not run a record label and there was a lot of very important people at the start of Finders Keepers as a concept and mm. B music you know people People who were DJs and designers, people who'd worked as contemporary DJs in Manchester and London and all over Europe, really, mm. who'd dug too deep into the history of the music they were playing, and they were kind of like anomalies with weird, weird record collections. And that's where I met Doug, and there were people like Don Thomas, Cherry Stones, John McCready. Mm. All these people were around, sort of like I always said there was like you can have one lunatic on a street corner shouting at himself, mm. or you can have a load of them together and you become an, in, an institution. Yeah. And that's kind of what B-Music became. Doug had worked at Twisted Nerve as a student with us before, so it was only really a small handful that actually knew how to run a record label or how not to run a record mm, label. Mm, mm. So we chanced our arm on the Jean-Claude Vanier record, and it might have been a label which lasted for one mm. release. So Jean-Claude Vanier that we've just heard, a very important record, because it was the beginning. How did you get and track down that record between the two of you? What happened? It was a mythical album. No one had seen that record for a long time. It was the mythical follow-up to a very famous record called Histoire de Melody Nelson by Serge Gantz. He was the arranger and producer on that, was he? Vanier was, yeah. 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 And it was spoke about in hushed tones. It's a very difficult record to find, mm. and it was as easy to find the original composer as copies of the record itself. Right. So when you meet your heroes, what do you do? I mean, you speak to... I, I can't talk to Jean-Claude Vanier about, about how to arrange a huge orchestra. After a while, you get to the conversations, maybe we should do something together. Mm. So me and Doug spoke to Jean-Claude, Dom spoke to Jean-Claude, we all got together, and we said... Where was Jean-Claude? In some big chateau in France? Where where was? Oh, no, this was Andy and I. I think my first exposure to the record, of course, a big fan of Gansberg, um, was over a kind of clandestine pub lunch in Putney somewhere. Andy had been uh, on the trail of um, Sony BMG in, in search for Jean Claude and uh, sort of gave me a glance of the record under mm. the table, sort of as a. This is the Holy Grail, exactly, then, is it, at the moment? Yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah. from there we just kind of pulled resources and got the connection. Exactly. And well, the first time we met him, he said he, he he couldn't hardly speak any English at all. Mm-hmm. His his daughter said to us, "Listen, come back in two months' time, and Jean Claude will be able to speak to you in English." And so he, we went back two months later, and he, sp- he spoke no. better English than we did. <laughs> <laughs> so this is like the equivalent in your world of meeting Elvis. Well, it's like meeting Adam. It's the dawn of creation. Yeah, yeah, that's that's yeah. how it started. As this yeah. alternative music musical universe that we created, Jean Claude Vanier is like the granddaddy, and everything right. sort of came from there. And you know, like I said, if we only released one record on Finders Keepers, and it was L'Enfant Assassin de Mouche by Jean Claude Vanier, 
we'd both be happy men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's probably a, a lot richer. Well, it's, uh, <laughs> but it started the phenomenon, that record, didn't it? We move on to Yamashuki, Yamasuki, rather, which is your second release on Finders Keepers Records. Do you remember how long the gap was between these two records? Was it a fully operational label by the second release, or is it you still, still making up, still making up as you went along? No idea. <laughs> no idea what you were still doing by record number two, release number two. This, this French music <laughs> is working. Let's try it again. And uh, we released a French stroke Belgium record, which was something between a judo instruction record, somewhere close to Langley School's music project style dance record, and then an all out novelty record with huge drums. You're listening to the Finest Keepers 10-year special. Uh, 10 years of alternative music, would you be happy with that? that, that are you the alternative or beyond alternative? Accidental world Accidental music, Accidental world think, music, yeah. Making old records feel young is one of your little slogans, which I like. Yeah, yeah, we've got a few. A record with big drums, Yamasuki, La Monde Fabulou de Yamasuki. Yeah, I don't. That's nowhere near the correct pronunciation. So we're at record number two in the ten-year history of the label. Well, you're not a label as such by number two. Can you remember about this time what your thinking was? Were you going to think this is going to be this is going to go? I'm not sure any of us really did. To be honest, I think we were obviously really high off the back of the Vanier LP, not just um, with the sort of relative success we had with it, but just as a sort of. Uh, the personal pride of being able to put that record mm. out. Yamasuki came maybe three months down the line. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people were like, wow, what are you going to do next? And it was. And you didn't know that. You didn't know at that time. I mean, the thing is, we we had years, uh, years of 
releases in our heads. You mm. know, we, it wasn't like there was a shortage of releases. It was just like the thing with setting up a reissue label was, is this possible? And the major music industries had taught us that it wasn't possible. You know, working with old catalogue wasn't possible. So it was an eye-opener, Jean-Claude Vanier. It, we spoke to him, it worked, and it was like, right, why stop? You know, it was it was almost like to sort of prove your parents wrong, really. It was like, come on, let, let's, let's do it well, I think again. In, in a way, you're saying that Vanier was the complete inspiration to carry on, in a way. Vanier was a holy grail, which we conquered right. straight away. So once you've conquered one mountain, you want to go and climb the next. Is uh, that not possibly, possibly, yeah. It was definitely, you know, reissuing old records, looking for old master tapes, meeting old people, you know, it, mm. it, it, this whole thing, uh, meeting families, stories, posters, print, the wider context that the meeting somebody in office d- doesn't lead to is a very addictive process. Mm. And 100 records later, you know, we... Yeah. Yeah. Yamasuki wasn't an, an unknown record, though, was it? It wasn't entirely unknown. Like, you know, it was... It was. I mean, I think Dom had picked it up from Julian Record Kings because it was well-known just for this one track with mm. the huge beats on. So it was like a Belgium-French mock Japanese record. It took a long time for me to even realise that the name Yamasuki is just a mixture of Yamaha and Suzuki. Oh, that, really? That's yeah. how novel... That's how novel You're not into motorbikes, obviously. <laughs> no, neither, neither yeah. am I. Neither, yeah. <laughs> but it had this huge beat on. But the thing that, pe- you know, people like Edon in America, there were certain diggers that were, were on this record, but it translated as an entire album, and that's something which was difficult in, in the early days, to find albums mm. which were, f- from start to finish, full of worth. And, and the idea that Finders Keepers is an accidental world music label, no strangers to trash, you know, championing that, the trashy element, not going too art house or intellectual with it, but just playing good, continuous, you know, crazy records, it was it was the perfect release, really. And the fact that the people that made it were the sons of Daft Punk... Mm, well, there you go, there's history <laughs> itself. And then we came down to earth, closer to home with the charity shops of Greater Manchester, <laughs> discovered God bless them. what turned out to be Welsh music. And the next project was Welsh Rare Beat.
We are celebrating 10 years of the Finders Keepers record label, something like 250 releases. That was the third release from Welsh Rare Beat Volume 1. That was Sedan from North Wales. What can you tell us about putting this together? What do you remember? That was born from a rainy boot fair find, if I recall. Was it the Hugh Jones 45 that sort of first tipped? I think it was yourself, Andy, wasn't it? Onto uh, this, this, well, what we thought to be a little, well, a little known label called Sign but actually uh, happened to be sort of the cultural hub of of Welsh pop, folk, psych, prog, mm. uh, to this day as well. It's true, like, charity shops and car boot sales was where Welsh records would occasionally crop up. But mm. they were record. They, they could have been Hungarian records, they could have been Polish, they could have been Greek, because we didn't understand the language. It took a while with a few of them laid out in front of you to go, oh, my God. It's interesting because from even, Wales, a hundred miles away. Even to this day, you still have that strong connection with Wales, with the Number Six Festival and Welsh bands. Absolutely, Wales. But, yeah, but, it, but it was it was it was finding Welsh records and trying to find someone who could put them into a context, which right. galvanised our relationship with Griff Reese. That's right. how how it started. When I started playing Welsh records, Griff asked me to come and DJ on his tours, and then met Dor. We we all got together with Dom and started this project, which was the Welsh Welsh Rarebee mm. series. Essentially foreign language protest music one of the only pop cultural movements to actually cause reform in british politics Mm -hmm. i mean anti-establishment anti-english totally independent i mean you couldn't have dreamt for a better musical movement to exist on your own doorstep Mm -hmm. and the community of people that we that we met and have come on to do great things with us and on their own has been incredible so it was definitely something which really sort of um helped the finders keepers galvanize the whole thing absolutely yeah yeah Yeah. so on to release number four the original motion picture soundtrack to douglas hickok's sitting target 10 years of finders keepers records making old records feel young
Release number four, Stanley Myers sitting target, the soundtrack to a movie I've never seen. Um, Which you should. Which, well, I, mean, I, I certainly should. Can you give me a, a little overview of the, uh, the the movie itself? Oliver Reed. Oh, well, you're, uh, you're on the winner already there for me. His <laughs> handsome sidekick, Ian McShane, out yeah. for revenge. Yeah, what was the what is it? Is it an esp- espionage movie, is it? No, it's like a... What, is it Wandsworth? Is that the prison? Wormwood Scrubs? Oh, it right. was a prison break thing. Oh, I think I might have seen it. Well, yeah, with a lot of eye candy for the girls and, uh, and for the guys, because it's got quite... <laughs> an attractive cast but it's brutal it's the first x-rated british movie uh, early 70s it was early 70s yeah 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 uh, the love of the movie then brought you together to try and dig the thing out then was it a love uh, was it a you know a kind of thing that you played at the office everyone liked the movie then you thought let's try and get this soundtrack is amazing can we get it out on the label well, yeah i guess it, but it's just, it's the same of um, a lot of sort of films i think that we we sort of share a passion for um there's usually the linchpin uh, is the music composer, and mm. in this case, uh, it was Stanley Myers. Right. Who who is uh, British? Yeah, yeah, British composer. He did stuff like Otley, and um, he does some classic. Not to be confused with the guitarist who played on the Day Hunter. He was called Stanley Myers. That's as well, right. Wasn't yeah. He? But um, prick he, up your ears. He did yeah, as well. He, yeah, he's done. He's done amazing. So, oh, he did all the. Pete Walker soundtracks like Frightmare and House of Whipcord. So he's already he's already working on the wrong side of the BBFC when it comes to the video nasty boom. But yeah, he is an amazing, you know, still underrated uh, composer. But we never met him, and this was the thing with working with soundtracks. We'd, we'd already come to our first sort of like you know uh, hurdle and uh, and learning about a different side of, of licensing music. Yeah, I remember heading down to the office, the London office of uh, a publishing house and sort of being slung the master tapes by uh, some some young secretary. And I think that's about our involvement. The, the film and the music, it, for me, it was a post-pub classic when I was a kid. It was things like, things that had come on after you'd got back from the pub, things that even weren't that didn't appear in the Radio Times or the newspaper. It was just like some guy threw a video on the well, after hours. Not to mention know. the fact that it was hard to find on video as well. It was definitely uh, on a preset tip. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but it was just the slow, grinding, orchestral sort of mid-tempo drum beats, all the perfect UK session men like Herbie Flowers, Norman Winstone vocals... Um, you know, it was just like it, the cream of the crop of the UK session men. So this, you know, the kind of thing you'd expect to find on an old library record, but it wasn't. Custom-built soundtrack, synths, brooding strings. Oh, it was like a dream come true, same target. And never previously released until we did that as our four, fourth release on Finders Keepers, Sitting Target by Stanley Myers. Uh, we started at the top of the show talking to Andy about uh, Twisted Nerve. Doug, I'd like to ask you, because you would worked uh, as an... Was it an apprenticeship at Cherry Red Records, no, which was the no, back, back catalogue record? I was pressing. And marketing. Uh, oh, uh, that my, was my, yeah. my first job into the biz. John had really made his money out of uh, Dead Kennedys, is that right? And then the, yeah, the, the late, they started back in the day. I think they were, they were promoters first and foremost because yeah. uh, I think they're pretty much one of the oldest running independent mm. labels Still in the going country. Yeah. So you must have you, you obviously cut your teeth there and learnt how to maybe track sort of back catalogue down in little ways. Very you, much so. Every every facet of the label. Christine they, Howard, does, does she fall into the category that you had to sort of you know do some detective the work late, on? Great Christine Howard. Yeah, it's. Um, um, that was, I think, one of the, the first real instances, of course, other than Jean-Claude, where mm. we had to really put some time in. Dom and Andy had, uh, had really gone to town with the phone book, 
This is, you know, the internet was not uh, as we speak about it in, in this day and age. It was uh, yeah, of course. But you also got to sort of bear in mind that yeah. uh, a lot of these guys were sort of getting on in years as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's not as if uh, so the the A to, you know the other pages A to Z. You just get out and, and go through where you think they were or lived or, or I mean what? that's that yeah that and that was influenced by just cutting putting the line through that Christine Howard another totally. yeah yeah well, that goes back to Northern Soul uh, you yeah know, British does, guys yeah. going over yeah. to America and taking yeah. entire pages out of phone yeah. books just ringing everyone. Also, to throw the scent. Because mm, mm. the, the amount of times people are going to cheap motels across America and somebody had ripped out all That's the pages. Yeah. All the pages. All, all the, the information, yeah. Destroying yeah. the information. Like, where's the record shop page? So, yeah. You no, know, you're right. Yeah. Phone there's, books were everything. Yeah. There's no hard and fast rule with it, though. I think with Don Cooper, it was something as tenuous. I found there was a, an intern engineer on the Bless the Children LP when we were doing Don Cooper for, for Cherry Red for our other imprint, our first imprint prior to Finders Keepers, Delay 68. And I actually actually managed to track down this engineer to his own new studio right. and it turned out he lived down the road from Don oh, so he sort of wandered up got yeah. him down and put him on the phone to me so Christine mm -hmm. Harwood how do you tra what's the story about tracking Christine down well the phone books kind of failed really we spoke to a lot of people called Christine Harwood <laughs> <laughs> <You did. laughs> but, um, but then out of nowhere Doug was working on a Cherry Red project which brought up the name Mickey Dallin and now Mickey Dallin in, has got a big fan base but there's only really one Mickey Dallin record that I was interested in and it was was the Christine Harwood record. I think Doug had learned, we'd all learned together about reissuing records, and in the first few years, Doug was taking as much new info to Cherry Red as he was mm. to Finders Keepers. So, you know, we'd, we'd, learnt, we'd already, by the fourth, fifth release, we'd all learnt a lot. Well, we'd so. already been one, two releases in prior to Finders Keepers. Again, I don't know if uh, people are aware, but uh, Folk is not a four-letter word. I think it's where Andy and I really solidified, not just... Folk, folk is not a four-letter word, Folk is not a four-letter word word two and prog is not a lot for not prog is not a lot of fun yeah, um yeah. yeah and yeah they were um you know gr they were great compilations and it was brilliant working with cherry red but we were vinyl we're vinyl nuts mm. and we wanted everything to, to to be we wanted things to be 12 inches in square and yeah. uh, you know and we got really busy but doug's contacts at cherry red allowed things like um christine harwood to happen it was a super rare record i was lucky to get it when i was really young and watched the price escalate for years and years just a one-off record made when she was 17 with an incredible incredible version of wooden ships that sounds like this
From global glam to failed pop, this is the Finders Keepers radio show. listening to 10 years of the Finders Keepers uh, label from the uh, Keepers Scottish somewhere in the English countryside. I'm Pete Mitchell. We have the Founders uh, sounds like news night this isn't it? Uh, the Right Honourable <laughs> Andy Votel and Sir and the Dishonourable We had a couple of records there. We had of course we talked about uh, the very wonderful Christine Harwood uh, from the album Wooden Chips and then we move on to Bruno Spoheri. Uh, is that probably the worst pronunciation of his name? That's pretty much right. I mean, you know, I think there's, I think there's a Swiss version and a German version. And Glucksgugel. Yeah, Glucksgugel. Look, lucky ball. Is yeah. that is that translation? Yeah, I think so. That's from, from if memory serves me. Co- Something to do with the lottery. This or something. It was a theme tune for a game show, which was very much like the lottery. Mm. And the Glucksgugel scene, or the music that we just heard, was the equivalent of like the gold run on blockbusters. <laughs> it was where everything got quick and fast, and it's like, you know... Frenetic. Yeah, just, oh, yeah. And that's, that's, that's what that, that piece of amazing electronic sort of modern kraut rock was, was doing mm. then. He was a pioneer. A jazz man in very high esteem in Switzerland. Zurich played with everybody. He's played with everybody this day. Really? Right. And he's... One thing about Bruno, he's a big record collector as well. He's got a record collection which is as big as his massive synth. 
collection. Wow. Oh, so, is it? Oh, he's one of those, is he? So he's got a big mansion or a big chateau or somewhere in there. If he had a big mansion, you still wouldn't be able to move because there's so many. He's got so much good stuff. Right. So we connect with Bruno. You know, uh, language barriers never get in the way because we just speak via the medium of mm. vinyl grooves and wires. And he's and a works. very, very wonderful person. Yeah, absolutely, a, a huge friend of the label. It's still, as you, as we we're still pretty early into the label, it still has this scattergun approach to where it's anything and everything. There's nothing has to follow. There's no rhyme or reason to anything, is there? It could be a soundtrack, it could be Welsh, it could be German. It doesn't really matter. Uh, is this something that's cohesive through the, the early period of the I label think, or not? We, we never really set out, though, with a label in mind. I think even to this day we still kind of consider or a Sonic, it a you'd... hobby. Oh, right, yeah. As such, okay. this is just a, sort of a means for us to... Uh, to, yeah. to work with musicians we like and it's, it's of course it's, it's amazing it's humbling that people yeah. enjoy what yeah. we do and people support what was we do Was there a time there where you thought well we've done German we've not done Belgian yet we need to move to Israel or uh, Egypt well, I think we, we covered all those bases in our in our personal collections in our DJ sets anywhere and, and as we progress with each release I think the crew the family got bigger and more people were bringing records to the fore and mm. it, it, it was just a very natural progression As young DJs who were trying to sort of like you know dig deep into the history of the music they were playing and then collecting obscure records and playing old music in clubs I used to say we played hip hop without playing hip hop because we were playing old 70s records from around the world but to have your own style as a DJ as a teenager for me was like right you've got to go as far out your comfort zone as you possibly can so buying like an Australian record or buying a record a Bollywood record you know you were going as far far out your, your comfort zone and I made it quite an early decision just to stop buying English language music mm-hmm. you know because I knew because because it was it, it was better for the sport it was better for that small insulated competitive thing and uh, keep in mind you're competing with probably like two other people in the planet here. <laughs> do you know what I mean it's just like but you still have that should be drive. friends rather than competitors yeah, though, exactly, shouldn't you? exactly yeah, yeah yeah but they think you know we've got a thing now when we had the, when it was me Doug and Don we had this same mentality like if Doug's got a record I don't buy it and if Doug, I've got a record Doug doesn't buy it we don't need to we don't yeah. need to but you yeah. see I could tell the same things to me, me kids. Do you know what I mean? It's just like, why, why would you buy that computer game when your friend's got it? You know, my mum and dad taught me this when I was a kid. It's not rocket science. No. The idea of trophy collecting, when you've got your own sort of like progressive record label and collection, and you want to move forward, doesn't make it doesn't mean anything. You know, it's that them buying them rare records. Really, it doesn't really. At the end of the day, it doesn't. It doesn't really mean anything. It's meeting the families, meeting the people, spending time with people, finding out the records that didn't come out, and that's what we've been lucky enough to do with Bruno Spoeri. You know, Bruno Spoeri has got has got a discography of a thousand records. Nine hundred ninety nine of them haven't been released yet. Do you know? So it's yeah. it's, it's incredible. All right, let's uh, continue. This is uh, Susan Christie. Susan Christie, yeah. Well, funnily. Glucks Google and Susan Christie were both products of of the wider sort of network. I mean, there was a guy called Dino Iocha. Everybody knew a Bruno Spoeri record, a Bruno Spoeri record, which was based on these um, forklift trucks, mm. and it was a promotional record that we put out. A guy called Jazzman Gerald, a good friend of ours, had done a, a, a forty-five release of it. But Dino contacted us and said, "You need to go and check Bruno's wider uh, back catalogue out." We had another friend called Keith Darcy in the states, who is a, another guy who was 
a huge collector of unreleased private press records, mm -hmm. you know, catalogue a catalog finder. And this is, as I say, this is where owning original copies of records it, it became irrelevant because we really started concentrating on things that had never been re released before at this stage. And it's thanks to people like Keith that that, that something like um, Paint a Lady by Susan Christie ever saw the light of day because he'd spent time with a producer called John Hill in America and they were making incredible music which sounded like this.
You're listening to 10 Years of Finders Keepers Records. I like breaking boundaries before breaking even. I think it's one of my favourite logos. Yeah, you like to say it. You don't like to live it. <laughs> no, no I'm, I wasn't saying that. I just, uh, that was lovely. That's like a, some sort of hippie folk chick from, I don't know, the, the late 60s. You're going to tell me she's Californian now, aren't you? No, oh, East Coast. Oh, East Coast, was she? I think she might be might be from Philly originally. All oh, right, okay. Yeah, you know. But, uh, you know, uh, it was one of the first times me and you had been to L.A. But Finders Keepers started taking us on holiday quite a lot That's at that right, point, yeah, didn't it? Yeah, really? But I think we, well, it's our first trip to the West Coast in order to meet our East Coast sister-in-arms, Massa Tahinia, um, who I believe uh, you'd already... I've had some some dealings with uh, DJing with, I think, in New York. Did you York. never meet Master that in America? That was the first time in LA. Ah, oh, right, okay, right, yeah. So, yeah, we set up an American American division of the label by then. Oh, so, wow, yeah. I didn't realise so, that. Did yeah, yeah, yeah. Is um, it still ongoing? It's still on, yeah, and it, yeah, it always will be, you know. So, mm. um, and with Master, yeah, I mean, this just, I suppose, brings us nicely onto the, the next record. Because we mentioned Keith Darcy, who, who helped us with John Hill's amazing catalogue. Susan Christie was the wife of a producer called John Hill, who'd worked with bands like uh, Wool and Margot Gurion. Pacific Gas and Electric. Yeah, Pacific Gas and Electric. Right over my head, all this. Really? Yeah. Yeah. People like that. And then there was a huge other community of people like Griff and David Holmes and Jazzman, and everybody, by rights, had the ability to set up their own library of music. Everyone had these wonderful libraries of music. So, you know, it, so we the best thing at that stage was to do a... Well, a, a party record, I guess. We'll yeah. say we were a, a bit sort of younger and a bit uh, keener. Yeah, so this is the B-Music Cross-Continental Road Trip. We did a compilation, it? yeah. 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 Uh, it's dug into everybody's record collection. So a track from uh, the Extended Crew, basically, which I think uh, well, extended quite far and wide. Uh, I, I, we definitely sort of touched... I mean, Bob Stanley was on. We put a record on there from Saint Etienne, mm-hmm. and you know, David Holmes, who'd who'd been a really strong champion of the label. We called the record the B Music Cross Continental Record Raid Road Trip <laughs> <laughs> because that's what it was. And, and you can B Music became like the cr- name of the crew, mm. you know, the name of everyone. To, and it was it got its name from a club night that me, John McCready and Dom had put together in Manchester, which was basically second-class sound. That's what it was. You know, it was the ones that got away, you know, the amazing records which never quite made it. So it was the musical equivalent of B-movies. It wasn't B-sides, necessarily. No. It was failed A-sides and failed B-sides, by the sounds We were celebrating failed pop as, like, a real Mm. positive thing because it was misunderstood music, music which was so far ahead of its time. And there was a lot of DJs doing that at this Mm. point. So a compilation. You weren't that too far away from what the Northern Soul scene was doing in many ways. That was a genre built on failure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we were definitely, definitely heavily influenced by Northern Soul mm. as a movement. Yeah, Not the necessarily ethic, yeah, the, the yeah, music, yeah, but, same. you know, yeah. it, was, it was the movement that, that was, you know. And B, we believed, and still believe, that, that B music is, mm. is, is, is a genre, as much as we believe that Welsh Rare Beats are genre, mm, yeah, or Sykesploitation, or all, all these other bizarre couplets that we put together. We're going to play, uh, you're going to pick a track for B music, Cross Continental Road Trip? I think we should go with the first track of the... Uh, AZ Bizitzag, yeah, uh, which was also incidentally our first kind of foray into Hungarian music. Yeah, yeah, this would this opened the doors to Hungariton and that state-owned um, Hungarian uh, treasure trove of amazing experimental pop. 
Finders Keepers, B Music. Finders Keepers Records, an alternative history of music.
You're listening to the Finest Keepers radio show celebrating 10 years of the label. Uh, we had some uh, Hungarian music on uh, that various artists album, B Music, Cross Continental Road Trip, and then Valerie and her Week of Wonders, who is Czechoslovakian. So we have some Eastern an, an Eastern theme going on there. Yeah, funnily enough, there was two Eastern European records back-to-back then. I mean, oh, where do I start? Valerie and her one, Week of Wonders was, was probably us... At our most robust thus far, you know, this was like, right, let's really clutch for the dream come true mm. record, you know. Holy Grail was Jean-Claude Vanier. Something like Sitting Target was a huge ho- Holy Grail of an unreleased soundtrack. Christine Harwood was a ridiculously rare trophy record. But Valerie in a Week of Wonders was an Eastern European soundtrack from the Czech New Wave, which had never been released. People didn't even know whether the tapes re- existed. And we'd already been really working on this for uh, as a hobby mm. for 10 years previously. So it was like finally having enough catalogue and a website which could prove to people that we were an up and running existing record label we just went in with all our confidence and said listen contacted Barandov Studios in Czechoslovakia eventually they got back to us and said yeah let's move on this it looks like the right time to do it and it was a huge gamble as well on our audience because people were definitely coming up to the record and going where are the where are the funky breaks where are the mm. you know and this uh, where where are the fuzz guitars this is a pastoral witchcraft theme tune from Czechoslovakia, one of the most beautiful films from one of the most exciting cameramen, from one of the most exciting uh, screenwriters, costume designers. Its influences on people like Esper's broadcast are untold. Everything about this record is beautiful, but it was probably one of our biggest gambles because it was a departure from what we were doing previously, but it was fueled by the joint passion of all of us that this is something that could really work and hugely exciting. And from the record you just you just heard then, mm. I hope you'll agree. Yeah, you know, so, I think I do. We, yeah. I think I've got this somewhere in the collection. I'm not too sure, but we're going to move on to uh, Mustafa Oskent. Mustafa Roskent. Doug, Doug has spent a long time on the phone with Mustafa Roskent. Great Roskin. I have it's, it's a great one. It's a it's a, a chimp with a tape recorder, which uh, you've got to love the, the actual artwork there. What was it, what was the strap line we had on that? Was I it, love was that. Was it Gerald who who wrote us a, a little quote? Something like this is the best record made by monkeys. Yeah, something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Rhythm and soul. On yeah, it. yeah, yeah. No, dude, yeah. It's, a great, it's a great piece of artwork. T- tell us more. Then there's this monkey wrapped in tape with a microphone recording his voice. Well, it's a Turkish. It's, it says on the front. I mean, it's rhythm and soul, folk, spelt with a C, blues and jazz, rock and pop. That's what it was. It, essentially, what it was was. Uh, a cabaret band led by a guy called Mustafa Oskent doing Andalou pop. So, you know, harking back to a movement which had happened 10 years previously where Turkish musicians were encouraged to replicate the British beat sound using Anatolian instruments. This is the product of that whole movement. Uh, But this is an instrumental record with big drum breaks, stops and starts, and sounds like the best B-boy breakdance record you're ever going to hear. Uh, and yeah, we but sh- I think I've, this is an important record. I think not just for Finders Keepers, but for the the sort of reissue scene or that kind of scene in general, because there, there wasn't a lot known about Turkish records. We didn't know a lot about Turkish records at the time, and so this was uh, again a very sort of big step for us into uh, a new country, new scene. And uh, it was a lot of hard work. Again, we got met with a lot of resistance, a lot of suspicion, and through good looks, 
<laughs> charm. We uh, we've managed to, to uh, absolutely sort of allay those fears. We, and yeah. There was one Turkish record we, which we were obsessed with, which was the Selda record because it was a female protest singer. It didn't matter what country she came from at that point; the boxes were ticked. But when it turned out to be a synth record with fuzz guitars and and uh, amazing drum beats on, you know, it was it was it was the perfect finders keepers mm. record. A few people knew about it. Not many people knew about it. Mustafa Ozken, nobody knew about it. People in Turkey didn't even know about it. So the two were kind of released together as our uh, as our first, you know, um, foray into the in the into the the part of the label which we called Anatolian Invasion. Uh, so this is Mustafa Ozken, and then we'll listen to a bit of Selda, who many consider as one of the very best records that Founders Keepers have ever released. Finders Keepers Radio Show. Accidental World Music.
Haksız yere genç öldüren elleri yazma Doğuda doktorsuz ölen kulları da Ten years of the Finest Keepers record label uh, from the Keepers Cottage somewhere in the English countryside. Uh, we're going to hopefully go through over... How many shows are we going to do here? Uh, we're going to try and play more or less 90% of the stuff that you released. Really we can keep up with the releases, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. Using Chinese arithmetic, I think yeah. we've probably arrived yeah. at about five and three quarters. There's about t- 250 releases so far. Yeah, yeah, across the... It's, it's good when we talk through the, some of this back catalogue. Uh, your enthusiasm is still there for records that you put out in 2005. For instance... Uh, Zelda, I can see you, both of your eyes lighting up. It's these are along the way. You've hit many pivotal points, haven't you? In many sort of highs, and it's like uh, telegraph poles, isn't it? Along the way, you know the these highs and lows and things. I, I remember going to New York to to play um, a, a DJ set, and Finders Keepers had got to a level where people had started to know exactly who we were. So from a previous gig, let's say, that I'd done in America, my audience had doubled or tripled, but in the audience were DJs who I no. truly respected. Oh, were they? And when were I you pl- nervous, that? I was really nervous, yeah. yeah. yeah um, but when I played Zelda, they lost their shit, as, <laughs> as, it, as it was. And that it was a really, really proud moment. So you're actually going to other parts of the world. You can see that the reaction the label's getting, and you hit a record of this and everybody goes nuts. You think, well, I've, you know, I've kind of made it in this kind of B-music movement. Per- well, personally, and luckily, I'd, I'd kind of travelled the world with Badly Drawn Boy yeah. and various other bands being on stage and watching people's huge responses to, to music. So that was kind of great, but never would I have ever expected, you know, the same response to come from this kind of music, these lost music. There's no market research with no, Finders well, Keepers no, Records. No, there isn't. You just every single one is like a gamble with a lot of love behind it, you know. So yeah. it's like at this point we're taking we're taking risks on a on a on a weekly basis here. Well, I'd say not just then as well though. I think we, we were in Holland what last year and we were watching Zelda play and. To just uh, Andy and I sort of were both sort of just overlooking the crowd, and the, the demographic was crazy, um, yeah. full of sort of first generation Turks, second generation Turks, but also Dutch kids, and mm. they were. Going How does that crazy. happen? Is that entirely th- down to you and the label, or is it does it spread a bit further well, than that all, with the with the club scene? All I can say is you'd have to ask Zelda herself because yeah. because she she said multiple times in in magazines and the press that that if it wasn't for 
Finders Keepers, my music wouldn't have left left Turkey. And uh, there's a lot of people who we've mentioned already on the show who, who share, share the same sentiment. So that's a beautiful thing. I mean, it's hard for us to say from the centre of the, the storm, really, but, you know, mm. it, it's Jean-Claude Vanier. You know, they, people say beautiful things about us in the press, and that's one of the most rewarding things. Yeah. Let, let's continue ever. then with Sarolta Zalat- Zalatne. Zalatne. <laughs> Sarolta what did you Zalatne. say about what, what? What is the write-up about this show? Is it a, a, a show, a radio show of mispronunciations? What was yeah, it? What's yeah, the, there's yeah. a, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I dare say there's probably been so many mispronunciations of various acts from around the world already. But it's, that's not part of the thing. We don't have to be uh, correct in every foreign language. We're, it's the is music it? that counts. I thought you'd stop running then. But... No, <laughs> oh, no. Oh no. God! Yeah, the amount. Oh wow! Mispronunciation. The fun yeah. of going into well, it. Tried to explain. A, yeah. What's yeah. Been in the first ten minutes. It's, yeah, mispronouncing it, looking like a boo. Very dramatic uh, cover you have here of uh, Zeralta, who looks like uh, she's coming out of beams of light, or uh, or like a like a, like an Indian headdress or something. It, it's, it's an incredible record it is, sleeve. It, it's yeah. a great one. It's absolutely amazing. I mean, it's an all-time favourite record sleeve. I, I recently did a thing for Tash and Books where they asked me what my top ten record sleeves were, and that very sleeve was in the top ten. Right. She's, what she's was it, what other sleeves were in the top ten? Can you remember? <sighs> what is your all-time favourite? Sleeve. Uh, it's somewhere between Horrific Child by John Pierre Massiera and Sun High by a band called Blue Wing Console, which is a DeWolf library right. record. So if you put me on the spot, there's a very Shouldn't really clear do that. Yeah. answer. Yeah. 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 It doesn't matter. I asked ask you that and I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> what they look Pure like. Syntax. Are they connected? <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah, yeah. I just made them up. Yeah. 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 So tell us, Sir Alter, um Doug, what we're going to hear and play something by, by uh, the lady herself. What can you tell us about yes. her? Yes, a Hungarian, I guess, what, 60s beat goddess who kind of... Um, reinvented herself uh, throughout the sort of 60s and 70s into some sort of psychedelic siren. Um, mm. we, we had exactly the, what she looks like on the, on exactly, the cover here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. we had yeah. the pleasure of meeting her in, in London, didn't we? Um, she came over, uh, we, we were talking, well, we had hoped to arrange some concerts in the same vein as we'd done with Jean-Claude Vanny at the Barbican, mm. uh, and then, of course, later with Jean-Pierre Massiera also at the Barbican with Magma but sadly nothing came of it but um, we did have a quite an interesting evening of uh, sort of anecdotes about Spencer Davis group uh, Brian May Seralta knows everybody really Oh. Yeah, sixties hippie chick. Then she she she's, she's written three books about uh, one was something called In Bed with the Reds or something like that, which is about uh, her s- sort of sex life with wow. uh, in communist uh, Hungary and how she spent time with visiting bands such as the Bee Gees and all all these people. So she has. She will talk to you for a, she'll talk to you for a long time about her first-hand relationships with all these people, right, and right. it's fascinating. She's very much a public figure in Hungary. She's is she a politician now? I think she or on the, on uh, the fringes sort of, activist, of politics. Yeah, yeah. yeah she's she she's, she's been on Hungarian Big Brother, which was you know. She's, See, this is what is so fascinating about. Finders keepers in a way. You 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 talk about this character nobody's heard of. You think I've got to read those books. I want to find out more about her. That's exactly what totally. the, the, the idea behind everything you do is. And you know, she, she looks amazing. She's got great stories. She can tell you a yarn or two. That's that's somebody you want to read more about, isn't it? She's very very sexual and sensual person in a whole Oi. in everything she does though. Because she she also um, she was also in Hungarian Playboy and at the age of. 
in her late, 50s, late 50s. I think, yeah. yeah, so right. I think she's quite she's wow. challenges that she pushes the envelope, you know. Right. She's... Let's hear something. Yeah, let's uh, let's hear it. Yeah. <laughs> Ruggie, Ruggie. <laughs> <laughs> we go the uh, tremendously exotic and interesting Seralta Zalatne. Yeah, they were, they, it's it's great to uh, play uh, have played Zelda then Seralta because mm. they're both uh, two amazing records, two amazing artists, two amazing two amazing females who were still very much in the public eye in 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 their uh, their countries and and are very vociferous about what Finders Keepers have done for their careers. So we're very flattered mm. to to count those people as true friends, you know, true friends of the label and people who we have uh, 
ongoing ongoing relationships with. So interesting one coming up. Daisies is this? Daisies. Well, well let's just stay in Eastern Europe. A weird again. looking cover again there with uh, somebody's yeah. pulling the tongue out. Well, it's a weird looking film. Um, um, it's, it'd be a weird looking film if you hadn't watched it nearly every weekend since you were sixteen years old, which, which, <laughs> which, you which, which I have. Yeah, yeah. It's the best film ever. Tell me about. It. Just made. give me a bit of the plot. Do you want to hear the plot? Yes, please. There's no plot. There is. Ah, okay. Let's hear it. Yeah, here we go. Breaking boundaries before breaking even. Ten years of Finders Keepers Records. Welsh Rare Beat, around the world, Finders Keepers Radio Show.
Listening to 10 years of Finders Keepers records, over 250 releases. Another couple there. Let me just think then. We had Daisies. It was the soundtrack to uh, another Czech New Wave film. Czech into some Welsh. Yeah. Uh, which we were talking about a little bit, and uh, of course, festival number six, and that, uh, that, that this well connection with uh, Griff uh, continues with with, the, with you and the label and the DJ uh, oh, and all yeah. of that kind Ka- of thing. Kate LeBon, H. Hortline, a good friend of ours called Dull May, who works within the the, the Welsh media. Tender prey, tender prey from yeah. Cardiff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Galwadi Mened. To us sounded like early Velvet Underground demos sung in Welsh. It was a no-brainer. And it but two EPs on the Drew label, Drew or Wren, which uh, is the name of the little bird. Um, so, yeah, uh, and that was almost like a sister label to the, uh, or a precursor to the Sign label. This was probably the start of a new Welsh rare beat campaign because we did our first ever sequel. Mm. And we sequelized Welsh Rarebeat. Griff came back on board. Having we'd spent a lot of time with Griff by then, hadn't we? Yeah, We'd but I think the, the, the scope of the sign, sort of their library, sort of had us in awe. Basically, there was there was no way we couldn't do another comp. Absolutely. Well, what happened? We did the first one off records that we owned. So the first Welsh rare beat was sort of like you know there was mastery from the vinyl. Were you? Yeah, yeah. Well, there was records from people like Lee Brady, Gareth Cherry Stones. Everyone. It was um, it was just amazing that these Welsh records existed on our patch. So we all put together a fully formed dossier of records we wanted to release and Griff put them in context by the time we did Welsh Rare Beat 2 Griff had earned us the keys to the castle and we were going in archives the BBC archives the Welsh National Library finding every piece of Welsh music ever made we joked at the time that no what did you do on Thursday and we were listening to every Welsh Welsh Rare <laughs> Welsh pop record ever, ever. made yeah, you know ever. so you know but we did over a week we listened to a lot of music it, it wasn't again it wasn't about digging for records at that point I mean digging for original records is a curse that we will have for the rest of our lives we'll always do it we'll probably always be accused 
accused of, of getting into bits of trophy buying and record competitive and staying up until too late at night and you know mm. and don't even talk about buying records to... at Northern Soul nights no, when you've had a few drinks. No, it's no, just no, like no. you know yeah, it's yeah. But that thing. But the thing is, it's the communities and it's the families and it's the old master tapes and the old photos and knowing the people and that's what Finders Keepers is all, uh, is all about and to go into archives genuine archives was just something that had previously existed in dreams yeah. so to be invited into like you know to go into that's the, the payoff though isn't it going down to some basement and all the way all on oh racks God. and stuff that is the that is it isn't <laughs> it, it what it was, it's all about it was a dream it was a dream yeah. and and that's how well to me that it. still doesn't it only exists in a dream that you go down open it, a creaky door and down the steps and there it all is you know that's what it was like wasn't well, it, it? Yeah. yeah we're going to uh, finish our first installment of the show with a couple of records what we're going to play so this next record is uh, probably one of the most obscure re- Welsh records we, we we saw that year, and it was by a band called AD Seventy Three, Higher and Higher, and it's an anomaly, instrumental track actually. And it sounds like this. Glam to failed pop. Around the world, this is the Finders Keepers radio show. Making global local.
çiçeğim yıllardır ağlayan dertli gönlümdü Derdimi söylesem sana dinle içim derin yara Neler geldi garip başa ağlarım yana yana Ah de var aloy Ah de var aloy Gözlerinden bilemem neden solgunsun sen Bilmedim ki neden güneşe dön çiçeğim Yıllardır ağlayan dertli gönlümdür Güneşe dön çiçeğim yıllardır ağlayan dertli gönlümdür Derdini söylesen bana senin bahtın neden kara Kerbela değil ki gönlüm sen de soldum diyesin bana Ah deler aloy Ah deler aloy You're listening to 10 Years of the Finders Keepers record label with Doug Shipton and Andy Votel. I'm uh, Pete Mitchell. We had AD 73 followed by Urson. 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 Back to Turkey. Back to Turkey, yeah. I mean, you know, at this point, we probably, between us, owned about a thousand Turkish 45s. It's all. It was almost like all our DJ sets were getting sort of like you know, you know. They say accidental world music. We'd play mm. one Brazilian record, a French record, maybe a Welsh record, and then like sixty Turkish records, and that was what a B music did they, night. Did they have a chart in Turkey? Or was it? How did, yeah. Was it yeah. cassette market? What? How did? How did the market function then in, in Turkey? It's, well, it's exactly the same as the UK market. It's but but it didn't rely on American Imports, artists. Yeah. yeah, not yeah. much of that was going on. Everything that they made their own. Everything. It was a very 
fertile ground for pop music. I mean, you know, the fact that they were using... I've said it before, the first time I heard a fuzz guitar on a Turkish record, it was the best fuzz guitar I had ever heard. I was like, what kind of guitar or pedal is that? And it wasn't a guitar, it was a saz. So they had like... A, What's it a was, saz? A saz is like a, an oud or a lute, so a big okay. bellied thing, you know, yeah. and it was just a demon, the demon fuzz. It was the true demon fuzz. And, and the artists that did, did stuff like that, like um, uh, the group Mohla and um, Zafadilic. 3RL. 3RL. I mean, you know, they were all involved in these records. And, um, not, you know. Not also that, it was still, a, it was also a very exotic scene for us still at that time. There was like rumours of oil shortages and records being recalled and smashed down and melted back down. And we were still kind of finding our feet. And we'd, we'd sort of had a few trips here and there in and um, trying to sort of source contacts and, yeah, yeah. And, and do some digging. Turkish music industry has very little to do with the Western music industry. Right. They've all, all new labels like like um, Yoncha and Grafton and, and um, Disco Tur and you know there's just let, you know maybe the odd record that looks like it says CBS on it or something but it was right. a whole new world which didn't need the West so it was great you know it's a beautiful place but still had the amazing synths and amazing singers amazing female singers you know especially when the disco thing started coming in as well it was the amazing very sexual you know female sultry vocals like really really cool you know similar to the sort of spanish spanish sort of disco scene a lot of the men used to sing in this really deep growly voice you know very dominant but then you had this guy called urson who had a beautiful beautiful voice genuinely beautiful i mean Baris Mancho was a very famous Turkish guy. He tended to rap a lot of the time. Cem Karacha, he tended to shout more like a sort of Jacques de Tronc-style character. But Ursula had a very soulful vocal. But a great band behind him with big, heavy Eastern rhythms, big pounding drums, you know. And with the testimony to their greatness, the record we just heard was sampled or emulated by Charlotte Gansborg daughter of Serge which brings us to a nice full circle given that Vanier was Serge Gansborg's arranger completing the 10 year mm. anniversary got a long past. way to go we're not, even pa- we're not even past the over the first hurdle hardly past the first hurdle hardly I suppose you know the, 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 the sample the sample story of Finders Keepers by this time you know Yamasuki had been sampled by Erica Badu yeah. Um, Seldo was getting sampled left, right and centre on records that were getting more famous and appearing on episodes of Beverly Hills 90210, at which stage Seldo started to sort of relinquish her, sort of, she didn't want to be sampled anymore, did she? And then there was a huge thing where she w- was depicted as as, as as falling out with most deaf in, on the front of Turkish newspapers because mm-hmm. she was like, I don't want to be sampled anymore. Mustafa's drum beats were turning up on tons of records, so I mean, you know, it was it, it, we'd we'd spanned into a different market now, which was sort of like you know the, where mod culture met hip hop culture mm. met everything everything else in between, and it was a great and vibrant time. It still is a great and a vibrant time. So yeah, I suppose that was the first uh, first bunch. Very enjoyable to this too. I'm looking forward to our further journeys into uh, the history, the archives of the Finders Keepers. A record label celebrating 10 years. Absolutely. Thanks very much, Pete. You have been listening to The Finders Keepers 10th Anniversary Radio Special.
10 years of Finders Keepers Records, an alternative history of music.